Well, it is a privilege to be here uh, with you this morning. Um, this is actually my first uh, sermon in a uh, at, at a church morning service in America. So it's I'm just blown away to be here. Uh, we, we do serve on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, my wife and I, um, at the University of Louisville, now known as Crew. Uh, I meet some of the students' parents and I say Crew and they go, oh, Crew, you know, like growing. Like, no, no, not, not like that. But uh, we were involved with Crew as college students. I at Georgia Tech in Atlanta and my wife Danielle at North Georgia College. And uh, yeah, God really did meet us during those years, incredible years of spiritual development for us, learning how to share our faith how to study the Bible, what is this whole concept of discipleship, of investing yourself in a younger believer and seeing them established. That happened to us, and then to turn around and and uh, to learn about discipling other people. Just an incredible time of growth for us. Uh, we had the opportunity to attend a crew mission trip to Croatia in the summer of 1998 uh, to work with university students there. And uh, two years later, I graduated from college, we got married. And we decided, uh, because of the tremendous need for the gospel in Croatia and the dire lack of resources for gospel ministry in Croatia, we decided to go back full time. And we stayed for eight years. Um, so most of our 20s, that's that's what we did. We, we lived in, in Croatia and ministered there. Um, but finally, seeing some national leadership raised up and my desire to attend seminary and a wonderful opportunity, a job opportunity here in Louisville to direct the crew ministry uh, at UofL, uh, had us, God had us coming back in May of 2009. So we moved back to Louisville where we knew not a soul, didn't know anybody. Um, but they say your third year in a new place is finally when things start to settle in. And I, I think that's proving true. So it's good to be back. Good to see that culture shock kind of diminishing, the reverse culture shock. So it is a joy to be about the work of evangelism and discipleship at UofL. Uh, there's a major spiritual battle raging for the hearts and minds of students uh, at that college. Our, our goal as a ministry is to enter into this environment and be a faithful witness to the gospel and to see a movement of students raised up who are so captivated by Jesus Christ that they are compelled to take his gospel to the campus and ultimately the world for the glory of God. That's what we're going after. We want to see students leave college as lifelong laborers for God's kingdom and really be mature, faithful, committed members of local churches. Uh, we want to see them graduate with a personal ministry mindset that says, yeah, I may go into the law field, the medical field, sports administration, dental hygiene, whatever it may be. But I know I have to be about sharing my faith and investing myself in the lives of other believers to see them established in the faith. We just want that to be the bottom line for anybody that comes through crew at UofL. So we accomplish this through a laser beam focus on evangelism and discipleship. We try to keep it really simple. Uh, we teach students how to actually explain the gospel to another person. Uh, we do large group outreaches like uh, inviting the Muslim Student Association to sit down with us around tables in the Red Barn there on, on campus. We did that once to share the gospel with students that otherwise we probably, probably never would have met. Uh, we have small groups where students are discipling other students on uh, holiness and prayer and Bible study and evangelism. Uh, we have a weekly meeting on Thursday nights where we bring everybody together for teaching and uh, worship and small group discussion. We have about 75 students attending right now. Uh, and if any of you, if you ever want to come check us out on Thursday night, 8 o'clock, you are more than welcome just to kind of get a glimpse what is crew all about. Uh, I noticed Andy or somebody had 
uh, our my most recent newsletter printed out there in the front desk. So grab one of those and kind of get a flavor for what we're all about. Well, Andy was so gracious to invite me uh, today. Uh, when he asked me to come speak on Orphan Sunday, I, my immediate reaction was me. You want me to come talk to your people about uh, adoption and orphan care? Uh, we really are very ordinary people uh, since John Mark and Adeline have come into our family. I guess they've gone to the nursery, but since they've come into our family, we, we typically have uh, some couples that come to us and are interested in adoption. They, they want to hear about our experience. And so we're, of course, eager to share and give advice. But even as we say, sure, let's talk, there's a voice in the back of our minds that says, you know, uh, we're, we're not experts. I, I, I hope you're not disappointed afterwards. I guess they'll soon find out, you know, who we really are. Uh, but God is good, isn't he? Isn't he? He, he designs everything on purpose. He knows exactly what we need. And he indeed has chosen to forever intertwine our marriage and our family with the reality, the beautiful reality of adoption. And so the fact that we're typical, commonplace people, I hope, is an an encouragement to you. You know, say, hey, if they could do it, maybe we could too. So I think there's abundant biblical evidence that that's how the Lord chooses to do things anyway. Uh, Power through weakness. I just see that again and again in the scriptures and I see it in my own life. That God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So that imprint, that principle, I think, is embedded in adoption itself. Uh, that both physical and spiritual adoption bear witness to the, the insufficiency, the neediness, the privation, the powerlessness of the one being adopted. And isn't that our spiritual condition? That, that's us. That's us. But amazingly, though we come empty-handed, we find that there is a place for us at the table of the family of God. So undeserving rebels like us, we actually find grace from God, not wrath, not abandonment. At our crew weekly meeting here in recent weeks, we've been talking about the gospel and that the gospel is like a diamond that you can turn in your hand. And with each turn, you get to see another angle of its beauty. And so that's what I'd like to do this morning as we think together about adoption and caring for the fatherless and being called children of God ourselves. It all comes back to the gospel. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 22, and I'll read through uh, Galatians 4, 7. So I already read this morning at the beginning of our service, but beginning in Galatians 3, verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children... 
were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we see here Paul making an argument, uh, the same argument twice. Uh, first in chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, and then again in chapter 4, 1 through 7. Uh, you might wonder what the law is. There was a time in my life where I would hear Christians talk about, uh, you know, I want to live according to grace, not according to the law. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I just didn't have categories for those things. Um, but the law is God's moral code. It's the Ten Commandments. It's uh, the rules and regulations handed down. By Moses. And Paul says we were held captive under it. We were prisoners of the law. It was our master. And it was a cruel master. It demanded we keep it. And then it condemned us when we couldn't. And and we learned that that was actually the point. In verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. Might be given to those who believe. So the law shows us our sin. It shows our inability to save ourselves. It points to our need for a savior. It says There's no way out of here unless somebody comes from the outside and rescues you. And that's exactly what happens. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Another translation says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. So our substitute, Jesus Christ, he he steps into the, the, the prison of the law and he fulfills its obligations perfectly. And yet he's executed as if he was a lawbreaker. And meanwhile, we get to go free. And seen as law-abiding citizens. Perfect law-abiding citizens. So faith has come. Christ has come. We are no longer under a guardian. We're now justified. We're made right with God. Not by following a moral code, but by putting our faith in Christ. So we never again have to fear the judgment of God. We have a new position. We have a new legal standing before the judge of the universe. And this is good news. That there is now... No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And if we stopped right there, you know, that would have been enough. Uh, but God, God doesn't stop there. He, he, he doesn't. He, he goes on to something else. You, you turn the, the gospel diamond another quarter turn and you see something else. We actually become sons of God. Verse 26. All of us who believe, whether we're Jewish or pagan, a man or a woman, high social standing or not. We're in the family now. You belong. And as it relates to salvation, all other ways of distinguishing people from one another mean nothing. The old divisions of superiority and inferiority are gone. You don't get in because you're a card-carrying member. You don't get in because of race. No, Paul says to the, to the Galatians, you, you Gentiles, you don't have, have to become Jews in order to become Christians. You're an heir to the promise of salvation given to Abraham way back in the beginning. Because of grace through faith. You are a son. You are a full-fledged family member. And then Paul, who never tires of unpacking the gospel, he does it again. Uh, He can barely say anything without talking about the gospel. In chapter 4, Paul uses this example of a child heir who was awaiting uh, adulthood when he could take control of his father's estate. And this was typical in Roman times. The child, though he has power legally uh, and really... In a sense, he's going to own everything. He's, he's still seen as a slave. He's nothing more than a slave. He doesn't 
have direct access to his father, but he has to um, relate to his father through through managers and teachers, guardians. And Paul says we're like that, that we are enslaved to sin. We're under the curse of the law and we're remote from God. He says we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world in verse three. So he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles. He's talking to real religious, pious people uh, who have their law from Moses. But he's also talking to pagans who worship demons. If you jump down to verse eight, it says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So whether you're enslaved to the law given by Moses or you're enslaved to the demands of your pagan religion, it has the same effect. You're a slave, you're a prisoner, you're a captive. People like to say we're all God's children. Uh, but Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that we're by nature children of wrath. He calls us sons of disobedience. Uh, Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees in John chapter eight, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So you see the state that we're in. We are rebels through and through. We are lawbreakers. We have no home with God. In fact, we, we are at war with him. We are sinners and we have been sinned against by other sinners. We're broken and we are fatally wounded and, and we're on our way to death. We're like homeless orphans that have no means of protection. And we've actually brought this on ourselves. And then verse four steps in. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So our inability to obey the law or to find salvation any other way was no surprise to God. Everything is happening right on schedule. And at the right time, God sends Jesus to rescue us. He's the God man. He's the son of God, yet born of woman. And, and you can't help but, but think about the prophecy given in Genesis way back at the beginning where it says the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that's what Jesus does in his death and resurrection. And so this great champion, he comes and he's born under the law, meaning he is obligated to keep it perfectly, just like the rest of us. And he actually does. And there was a price that had to be paid. And he paid it with his life. He redeems us. and He buys us back at the slave market. And then God the Father adopts us. He says, you're now cleansed. You're now forgiven. You're now right in my eyes. You now can be in my family. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing more to pay. And so we see that adoption is a work of grace, not of works. You don't do anything to get yourself adopted, right? You're simply adopted. You're loved. You're rescued. You don't get in by family entitlement. No one is naturally born into the family of God. Only Jesus could say that. Uh, the rest of us are, are adopted. And it does say adopted as sons, and that's on purpose. And there might be some ladies here saying, well, hey, do, do I get in on the blessing? You know, am I a part of this? Um, well, Paul is just borrowing from the Roman custom where the son, not the daughter, became the sole heir of all the father's wealth. Uh, so Paul is not teaching that men are better than women. He's just using this as an illustration. He's actually elevating the status of women, I think, uh, by saying that all Christians, men and women, are sons of God. How do you get adopted? As sons. Meaning, you get it all. So ladies, you get it all. You get it all just like the men do. That's good news. Men are adopted as sons and women are adopted as sons. Men and women are equally adopted and equally seen as heirs of God. 
So women, don't, don't begrudge that title son. It's actually communicating something wonderful. You know, Paul knew Greek. You know, he could have written sons and daughters, but he just chose to leave it as sons because he had something to communicate. Because we're adopted as sons, we get to call God our Father. Now, he is still our Lord and creator and judge and teacher and provider and protector. But the most intimate role that he has with us is his role as father. J.R. Packer, he said this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Well, that's something to think about. How well do you understand? Are you walking today in the assurance and security of your father's love for you? Do you know that you are a beloved child of God? Well, the Holy Spirit helps us. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. It's how Jesus addresses God um, at the point of his greatest need when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there is an intimacy, a transparency, a closeness in this relationship that's hard to fathom. It's very much like between a parent and a child. You are a dearly loved child of God. How do you know? Well, in one sense, you just know the Holy Spirit confirms it in your heart. First John 3, 1, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Are you a troubled child? Do you have issues? Do you have issues like me? Well, the father's heart goes out more to a troubled child, not less. God's affection for us is deep. It's not based on our performance. Paul's letter, I think as a whole, is a call to repent. Uh, Though we have this great treasure of of salvation as sons of God by faith, we have a tendency to go back to an old way of thinking, to the elementary principles of the world, to the flesh. There's an old way of thinking that still lingers. It's lost its mastery over us. The flesh has lost its mastery, and yet it still has an influence. I'm sure we all can attest to that, even this morning. So somehow we begin to think that we got in this new family by some other means, that, or somehow we maintain our status in this family by some other way, some other way other than adoption, some other way other than by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an old way of thinking that makes some of us uncomfortable with the idea of adoption. Uh, Like seeing a family like mine might make you a little squeamish. Uh, Why is that? Well, well, two things, I think. Physical adoption reminds us that something went wrong. It reminds us of the reality of sin and a heart-wrenching tragedy. Parents are supposed to love and care for their children. Parents are not supposed to abandon their kids. And so we shudder at the reality that such things actually happen. But doesn't that help us think about spiritual adoption? It reminds us of our own helpless state. Because you can't point to anything you did to to get you in the family. You can't point to bloodline. You can't point to family entitlement. You can't say, hey, I've got the right skin color, the right ethnicity. I'm simply worthy of the right to be called a son somehow. No, you're, you're here not by right grace. And so adoption makes us feel uncomfortable. 
because we can't point to anything we did to get us in the family. It reminds us of the horror of where we came from. And so when we see the orphan in his affliction, there is not always a compassionate response, but a revulsion, a pulling back, an accusation that says, you are other, you are not of us. And that's exactly what the Jewish Christians were doing to the Gentile Christians in Galatia. They're saying, you are not circumcised. You don't keep the law. You can't be in this family. And that is anti-gospel. And that is anti-adoption. So I found that thinking rightly about adoption will require repentance. Uh, You may need to repent of racism, like me. Uh, There may be a preoccupation with bloodline that says, me and mine. You, you can't come in here. You, you don't. You can't be in the family photo. You, you're just on the outside. You're, you're not welcome here. And if they don't have a place, you know, if you stop to think about it, why? Why do we? Why, why do we have a place? So, no, my, my son, John Mark, does not look like me. He has a different skin color. He, he combs his hair. Well, actually, he can't comb his hair right now, but his hair can't be combed the same way as mine. Uh, my son, my my daughter, Adeline, she has a different DNA uh, than, than me. Uh, but, but they uh, are my dear children. And they have every right and, and, and privilege and love and protection that any child in the Harmon family would be provided. So if you are in Christ, you can actually relate to my kids in, on a profound level. Uh, You, like them, have been adopted. You are part of a family that you were not naturally born into. So we need to come of age in the gospel. I think that's what Paul is teaching here through these these illustrations of the child heir um, and and the slave who had, uh, the the child who who really is no more than a slave. We need to stand secure in our sonship and, and come of age in the gospel. We are no longer children, and we've left behind the slave way of thinking. And there are good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. them. Good works that that we um, are to do in this life. Deeds that picture the gospel that we hold to. God has created this world with um, things that model spiritual realities. The heavens declare the glory of God. Marriage declares Christ and his church. Spiritual adoption demonstrates our own spiritual adoption in Christ. And so consider today on Orphan Sunday how God might be calling you to respond. Uh, Perhaps this morning you need to find, uh, perhaps you you actually find your heart being pulled in a direction that that surprises you. Um, I say follow that trail and and see where the Lord takes you. Um, I heard on the radio that if every church, each church in America would pull their resources together to see one child adopted, the orphan crisis in America would be over. That's an amazing thought. One child for every church. Of course, that means one family and every church would have to open their hearts and open their homes to adoption. So we have, we have a gospel to picture to a watching world. So how might you, a justified, beloved child, adopted by God, care for the fatherless? So let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that you call us your children. This is an amazing fact that is often overlooked. 
And Lord, we lean into you for gospel power that we might picture this, that this truth in our hearts would be enacted in the way we live, in the way we open our wallets, open up our homes, open up our hearts to this gospel truth. Lord, so I pray that you would move in this fellowship to consider what you have done for us in our spiritual adoption and what might be done in the world to remedy um, this crisis of, ador- of, of orphans in the world. Thank you, Lord. We, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.